0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Williams, a fan favorite. You probably know him from our previous episodes, and you probably know his writing. But since the last time we had you on the podcast, you have a new prefix added to your name. That's right.
1: Uh, yeah, a, a long time coming prefix of, of mis, Mr. Doctor. Um my my lovely wife fell and hurt herself the other day, and my seven-year-old ran over and said, Dad can take care of it. He's a doctor now. And we, <laughs> had, to, we had to have a talk about the, uh, the limits of my dissertation, but
0: yes. Yes, well, I thought the uh, dissertation was fantastic, and we're going to get into a little bit of it today. It was something that seems like, you know, every now and then a dissertation is so specific that is hard to get a hold of yours on the other hand pretty much just tried to solve all the problems of science and knowledge all, all in one
1: <laughs> that's a pretty good description uh, when somebody asked what was your dissertation about uh, everything uh, it, it I defied the usual wisdom that you picked something very narrow and I picked all of science and human history and said let's fix that so uh, yeah
0: well it makes you an expert on the book that we're going to talk about today in fact we're going to start a three-part podcast series today on a new book by Stephen Meyer called Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. Uh, Many people know Stephen Meyer, he's become very popular, I would love for him to become even more popular. I think he's one of the most interesting thinkers today. Uh, he, He is a PhD from the University of Cambridge in the philosophy of science. And that's why I think the two of you, if you ever get across the table from each other, would really hit it off. He directs the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle, and he's authored several bestsellers. Probably the one he's most famous for is Darwin's Doubt, but also Signature in the Cell has been a really popular book as well. Uh, We we talked a few years ago about intelligent design, uh, specifically creationary evolution. And uh, we went through a book that he had co-edited that had a theological side and a scientific side talking about some major advances in that debate. What this book does, and what I think is so helpful about this, it's become my go-to book for faith and science, especially for science-minded people, is he's now just without many frills, put forward the strongest case uh, that I've read in terms of what is the scientific argument for, or what are the arguments around the debate of faith and science that would lead you to believe that there is a creator and a God who stands behind the universe. So we're going to map this out into three chunks. Today, we're going to talk about the history of faith and science. Uh, the, that'd be parts one and two of his book. How did we get to this point where we're talking about science and faith the way we do in the year 2023? Uh, then the next week, we'll talk about the the kind of basic tenets of the arguments that he makes. What are the arguments for a creator If you look at the science and then week three, we're going to talk about where's this conversation going? Um, I think you'll see today the conversation has really changed in the last 10 years, 15 years. And I'm kind of excited about the frontiers that we're going to see in the faith and science conversation in the in the coming decade. So then I wanted to kick it off just by um, asking you to expand a little bit on the conversations that are being had right now. It seems like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was all about atheists and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the four horsemen of of atheism were reigning and ruling the New York Times bestseller list and Christians were on the retreat uh, because science had definitively proven that there is no God. What happened to those guys and why has the conversation changed?
1: Uh, Yeah, great question. And and I'll start by saying a lot of it has to do with contributions from guys like Stephen Meyer. Um, I'm going to add to your recommendation that this is a book everybody ought to be reading. I'm profoundly jealous of it, it. It came out in 2021, late 2021. I was printing off my dissertation in early 2022. And then I hadn't read this yet and then read it and thought, wow, that is better than a lot of my dissertation. I would have liked to <laughs> reference some of that. Uh, so, um, unlike my dissertation that probably five people will read, I'm hoping millions of people read this book by Meyer, and uh, I think it's very valuable. And and so it was the inevitable counterstroke of you know facts and reality that the 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 angry atheist took advantage of a moment where. Um, What they were saying was rhetorically powerful. So especially Sam Harris is just a good example. And throw Hitchens in there too. But Sam Harris, right after 9-11, there is a lot of anti-religious sentiment because of the feeling that it's Islamic extremists or just Islamists who have produced terrorism. That's the notion. That's the sentiment of the post-9-11 world. And you have people of all walks of life trying to make sense of that. The, the political progressive is saying, well, it's not so much about faith as it is about, uh, or Islam. It's, it's more about socioeconomic status that produces terrorism. You have the more conservative bent that um, you probably heard from George Bush, George W. Bush, saying, you know, it, there is a rendition of Islam that is extraordinarily violent. Uh, Even if Islam in general is not, you have to recognize that there is a rendition of that that does this. Sam Harris is coming out and saying, oh no, actually it is religion itself. Religion pushes you to extremes. It makes you buy into principles that are contrary to civilization and its progress and, and uses that moment to use a really big brush to paint all of religion as dangerous. So that's that's kind of his deal. He's doing it at the same time, Dar, uh, Darwin. Sorry, um, Dawkins is is continuing his his assault from the world of uh, biology. Uh, it, well, not even biology. Kind of quasi sociobiology or something where he's he's doing his thing. Um, and then Hitchens, who's just angry all the time, and was was made for the internet. I mean, he's so. Uh, he, he's the least intellectually powerful of the four, and the most persuasive mm-hmm. uh, rhetorically, because it, it just came with a punch. He does a man. There's a video out there somewhere of him talking about the Abraham I, offering Isaac story. Uh, I mean, it. Even when I'm prepared for it, when I watch it, it punches me in the gut because he talks about you know if some divine figure shows up in your dreams and says kill your only son, I'd say, you know, F you, divine being, that's my son. And and rhetorically, like as a father, you hear it and you're like, well, what, what would it have taken to convince me to kill my, and he walks through that in just a rhetorically powerful way that has no actual staying power, but it, it, it was rhetorically powerful. And in internet age, it was definitely YouTube friendly. Mm-hmm. And then. Daniel Dennett occasionally making his contributions such as they were. So there was a moment where the stage was set. I mean, like Gutenberg and the printing press, the internet was there. The mood was definitely suspicious of religion and, um, the religious conservative right of the 1990s was waning. And it was just like the perfect moment for four horsemen to jump out there and beat us up. And they did. Um, But the funny thing about great rhetoric and viral videos is they don't last very long and there Mm -hmm. wasn't a lot behind it. Um, Eventually you settle down and you start actually chewing on that. Um, Sam Harris, again going back to him as an interesting example, didn't want to dispense with morality or even spiritualism, just religion. Okay, so now that you've torn down all of Western civilization, Mr. Harris, can you rebuild it for us? And the answer was actually no. Like it was really th- paper thin. Um, Hitchens uh, dies of uh, cancer um, or or some sort of disease, uh, which was tragic. But even his popularity was waning. And Dawkins seems to have turned into some kind of mad hatter caricature of himself over the last few years. So that has just kind of dismantled itself. Um, and... It it wasn't meant to last. Then you get meaningful contributions from guys like Meyer. Um, Plantiga's Where the Conflict Really Lies set the stage for some of that. Um, Give some points to William Lane Craig, who kind of the opposite of Hitchens, like philosophically deep, rhetorically weak. So he's boring to listen to in a debate, but just logically powerful. Um so you start stacking those guys up and it it just it really tilted it in the other direction. Um not to mention uh and I thought this ended before I wrap up that paragraph there that uh the mood of the country changed too. The the modern atheist is really a deeply modernist movement. And Europe and now America kind of slipped into a much more postmodern vibe in the last 20 years. Um, so the rhetorical power of a modernist argument, science knows everything and everything's absolute, fell to uh, a more postmodern, everything's relative, uh, it's all about perspective point of view, which might even come to some of the same conclusions, but because the rhetoric changed so drastically. Um for what it's worth and i'm you know i'm not a huge fan of all things postmodern but from a postmodern point of view it's a lot harder to actually criticize religion because at worst it's just one more point of view among many that you have to be respectful of um whereas modernism could just say it's empirically wrong you know and really be strident about it
0: yeah it was interesting that i think of some of the new atheists actually got passed by by the postmodern moment that's it, you know they they started the car rolling downhill but they thought it was going to stop way before it did uh, as you mentioned sam harris was an interesting example of this he you know gets into meditation and connecting with what very much seems to be supernatural elements uh in the new agey Kind of trend that he's picked up on, but but and but now he he looks like a total hypocrite because yeah. he's grasping for things that he claims to have uh, criticized and torn down. At, at the same time, Harris and Dawkins, and we'll talk more about this in week three because I think this is really an interesting place where apologetics is going. Harris and Dawkins both have found themselves. All the way circled around again to where they're actually agreeing with conservative Christians on things like there are absolute truths, and uh, so much so that I, I found an article in the Spectator, the UK Spectator, from yesterday or the day before, where Dawkins is arguing against a education movement in New Zealand where. They're introducing Aboriginal Maori beliefs into the science curriculum. And all of a sudden you have Richard Dawkins saying, are you people crazy for (laughs) uh, trying to change curriculum like this? And Rick, Richard Dawkins, for for similar reasons in the past couple of years, has been canceled multiple times for standing in the way of progressivism. Because progressivism uh, makes that kind of atheism, because it's modernist, look a lot like conservatism. Oh, you're yeah. really certain about these truths. And oh, you believe crazy things like there are only men and women, and uh, you can't come from one and become the other. Okay, well, you're just the kind of backwards person that these conservative Christians are. And it's been this (laughs) very hall of mirrors experience seeing him get canceled and criticized for effectively the same things that Christians are being criticized for. Because in one sense, um, he's in that same camp for being a modernist, uh, but in the other sense, being a militant atheist against all religion he now has no home anymore in public discourse. And so I, I think there's, there's a lot of different things that have led to a waning of uh, the new atheists. I think some of it is people just don't care to debate on the level of what some of these atheists were bringing. And uh, I think pursuant to Meyer's project, the people that were starting to figure out, they didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, that's that kind of brings us to our discussion for today. Meyer's book, and I think, uh, as you mentioned, William Lane Craig and others, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, certainly, Michael Behe being yep. a person who's engaged. These people really, after a, a little bit of a head start from The New Atheist, decided to bring guns to a knife fight. And when you read Meyer now <laughs> against the backdrop of people like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, uh, since they are outside the academy, it, it's not even in the same ballpark in terms of the level that these these people are engaging.
1: Well, well, take another name who was kind of, I don't want to say he's the heir of the new atheist, but kind of the next iteration of popular um, atheistic figure, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who. Compare—he has a little book um, like Astrophysics for People in a Hurry or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, compare the level of dialogue there to this Byer's uh, book, Man, Apples and Oranges, and that's in his field. I mean, he's—he—he he is, for what it's worth, a, a good astrophysicist. He is, admittedly, a bad philosopher because he thinks philosophy is a waste of time. So. Uh, he just, yeah, gone to a knife fight is right, but he just doesn't have the either the chops or the energy or interest to actually engage at this level.
0: Well, you can tell a lot about the level of dialogue right now when the atheist tried to trot out Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. Uh, a, a, as a credible atheist uh, argument partner, I mean, he isn't really a scientist. He played one on TV, yeah. but uh, <laughs> he stayed in the really Holiday
1: kinda... last night. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I think part of part of what we can attribute uh, to this conversation is you just have world class thinkers like Meyer and the others that we've mentioned who are now writing really good material that's getting into the popular consciousness, and uh, it's a new day for the faith and science debate. And I want to go catch. back the
1: popular the popular consciousness is the is the catch there yeah the, the modern late modern atheist is still more internet quotable than we are and that's the one mm-hmm. place where we just got to do better Myers is blowing these guys away, mm-hmm. um but um Tyson just man he he plays great on TikTok uh, he makes yeah. a great YouTube video um Bill Nye I mean he pop culture wise he sizzles uh, regardless of substance. So how to get from this level of content to the popular level, I, I think is our probably our, our next challenge.
0: Yeah. Well, I, w- I want to go back to a time when this dialogue was a lot different than it is now, but also a lot different than it was 15, 20 years ago, uh, even mm-hmm. the last 50 years back to the birth of science. And one of the things that Meyer does in the book is he, he traces the history of faith and science And and one of the things that's really eye-opening is you sometimes hear about the Galileo story, and this has been debunked by a lot of books, that it was basically Galileo versus the church. And, you know, the church are the uh, ostrich with its head in the sand when it comes to scientific discoveries. He debunks that and several others to show, or at least to paint a picture of, the early days of what we would consider modern science were propelled and animated by religious belief, uh, to the extent that religious belief was the impetus for doing science. So take us back there and, and trace a little bit of that history for us when faith and science weren't always seen in op- opposition like they are yeah. now.
1: He does a great job of making the historical case, which we need to hear more of, and um, the only place this—I'll—I'll this, I'll tip my hat to myself for, for one thing, my one place where my dissertation goes a little further than he does. Uh, I start with Aristotle and come forward, and mm-hmm. I spend a lot more time in science in the era of Aristotle and science in the era of Thomas Aquinas um, before I get to what we call modern science. And if you take that view uh, of where does science come from, it is inseparable from philosophy and theology for its entire existence until reasonably recently. So you're Um, telling me there are scientists before Isaac Newton. Hard to believe, but yes. uh, Aristotle is the the father of modern science in a very real way. Um, He believed that there was an objective reality outside of your internal reality and that it was worth looking at. Uh, that thing, things had causes, and maybe we should want to know what those were. Um, he, he is the father of a, a lot of what Myers talks about. Actually, that we're still grappling with: of has the universe always been here? Does it have a cause? That's an Aristotle question, mm-hmm. one that he answered famously and and wrongly, which is fascinating. Uh, he's about half right and half wrong. He was quite convinced the universe had always been here, uh, which modern science has now said, well, that doesn't work, as, as would agree Genesis. But he recognized uh, you couldn't have an infinite regress of motion or causes. So you could have eternal matter, but something, some prime mover begins the active history of the universe, uh, which he was didn't care to speculate on who that or what that prime mover would be, but you needed one. Right. And that, that question is still what's being discussed today. I mean, that's literally the argument. So it it starts with Aristotle. It's deeply religious. It's deeply philosophical. Um, Aristotle's not religious as maybe your pop culture Greek of 300 BC would be, but uh, he was in his own way, religious. Um, And then all through that period down to Aquinas, Aquinas just picks up Aristotle and continues the discussion. In the the age of Aquinas, there was a rediscovery of Aristotle, which uh, actually started in in, uh, the Islamic world. There Mm -hmm. were some translations being made at about that time period, and Aquinas gets a hold of them. And when you read Thomas Aquinas' Summa, um, he doesn't even say Aristotle's by name. He just says, The Philosopher, capital P. Right. The one. Who else has there ever been? It's Aristotle and then now Aquinas <laughs> right. uh, having this conversation and just picks up with Aristotelian philosophy and continues the discussion. Um, Though that that chunk of history is kind of left out of Myers. And and that's tragic because it, it it is science in its own way. It's not modern science. I grant that it was science and it was brilliant and it was theologically intertwined what the ancient Greeks all the way forward to the medieval period lacked was they weren't as patient in observation as the modern scientist is Uh, for listen and in in human history there has never been anybody better at I'm going to make one observation do the rest in my head and come to a conclusion than the ancient Greeks were Uh, that second observation might have been helpful. <laughs> give, me, give me one observation. Uh, they're calculating, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, the circumference of the earth, uh, which they in fact knew was round. Uh, they get it to a, a matter of percentage points off. It's it's relatively accurate based on shadows and parallax and all kinds of stuff. They're calculating the distance to the sun with, dependent on the, the length of a stadium, they're Pretty close to that, you know. It's a unit question of how close they were. Um, it's it's incredible stuff for people who didn't know a lot by modern standards. So that that is the shape of science for the next millennia and a half, uh, almost two millennia, and it's incredible. What the the modern turn brought to it was was two things. One, um, greater patience. In observation, Um, and these guys were laying on their back, staring at the stars, naming and numbering them, um, measuring pendulum intervals, using their pulse as as their time piece, you know, just incredible patience, um, Galileo in particular, but it's really phenomenal patience and observation. And then it was a moment politically and morally where it was okay to disagree with the status quo of Aristotle and Aquinas, which at this point wasn't particularly well understood anyway, so disagreeing with some version of it was something you could get away with. And and they did, Um, while early on still remaining within the confines of the church. Copernicus is a devout churchman. He's, He's deeply religious. Um, Galileo, I mean, for, he was friends with the Pope before he was the Pope. Um, (laughs) Galileo doesn't get in trouble for taking a Copernican view. He gets in trouble for making fun of the Pope. If you read his book, um, (laughs) there's actually a a very early hand note, handwritten note edition of it at the university of Oklahoma's history of science department. And you can see him making margin notes where he's trying to smooth out some of his language to get himself out of trouble. Cause he, he went too far. The guy who took the Pope's point of view in Galileo's book is named Simplicio, the simpleton. Well, okay. It's late medieval Renaissance era Europe. And you called the Pope an idiot, probably going to get you into some trouble. And he was put under, you know, a terrible, terrible burden. He was put under house arrest in his mansion, um, for, for the remainder of his, his later years in life. R- really rough stuff, uh, house arrest in a mansion. Most of us during qu- COVID quarantine would have been happy with the uh, Galileo imprisonment uh, in his mansion. <laughs> but but yeah, so there's there's a divergence there where the political state is severing ties with the the state church across Europe. And lots of institutions are taking that opportunity to cut ties and see how far they can go. And so while on the one hand, you have deeply religious science um, birthing the unit, Isaac Newton being my favorite, as you mentioned, deeply religious, wrote far more about religion than he did about science. If you count pages, um, I get Copernicus, deeply religious, all, all those guys. But then you have people building on them who are less so. see it as an opportunity um and to to their credit there were overreaches from the church of that era saying things they just didn't know and not being um i'll say like being too brittle uh towards any departure from not just the point of view but from the way the point of view was stated Um, Newton and Copernicus and company saw the universe differently, but still saw God in it, but they saw it differently. And mm-hmm. that some people saw that as threatening. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think the the advent of modern science arises in large part when it does, because of the cultural conditions and because of the epistemological conditions. The invention of calculus or the discovery of calculus by Newton and Leibniz kind of simultaneously now provides a tool to do greater calculations and modeling than than people were able to do that before. And pretty shortly after that, you see people coming up with all these theoretical conclusions that then will power a half century or more of physical observation and discovery in physics, astrophysics. I mean, it's still the case today in astrophysics that our mathematical calculations far outpace our ability to observe and experiment. So you you have this tool now that in some ways it seems like kind of runs amok. Mathematics used to be known as the music of the spheres, Uh, used to be known as the language of God That you would have a universe that operates with a mathematical consistency to it. And then all of a sudden now we can prove things that certain people are going to interpret to say we don't need God because we can prove why this happens and how this happens. What was interesting to me in the book is some of the major discoveries from the time of, let's say, Galileo on, especially as you get into the early 20th century in physics and uh, astrophysics are not perceived at first the way we perceive them now. So, so take the big bang for, for instance, the, the big bang I come to find out in this book was originally seen as a big win for theism. Whereas now it's almost like the big bang is kind of the antithesis of theism. It's like, well, we don't need special creation by God. We have the big bang, but there was a lot of resistance early on about the big bang because it might lend us to come back to the conclusion that God really created things as opposed to what had been the status
1: quo in the day. Absolutely. Uh, The the greatest untold story of the last century is the actual origin of the big bang theory. Um, And I remember the first time I kind of stumbled across it. I mean, my jaw hit the floor and I thought, where has this been? And even now, during my dissertation research and afterwards, I'm still hunting. Um, where is the popular level approachable biography of Lemaitre? And I, I'm assuming I'm saying his name right. I'm not European enough to say it right. But um, Lemaitre is this Jesuit priest, priest, astrophysicist. Right. I mean, let's just start there. How cool is <laughs> yeah. that? Right? Jesuit priest, astrophysicist in the era of Albert Einstein and Bohr and all those guys. And he's developing answers to questions that have only recently been asked again, thanks to the advent of special and general relativity about is the universe um, inflating, is it is it infinite? What's the shape of it? And he is doing some groundbreaking work That Einstein hadn't got to yet. I mean, like he is a step ahead of Einstein in his own field. And he brings his work to Einstein, and Einstein ridicules it. He says, you know, there's no way this can be right. Uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, who was the dominant um, Neil deGrasse Tyson of his day, um, Sir Fred Hoyle, I mean, knighted for his contributions to science is mocking it, everyone say the smacks of Genesis is one of the great quotes, the smacks of Genesis. This is uh-huh. way too, but it was the notion that the science made, the math made a lot more sense to, to our non-scientific audience here. Look, let's boil this down. Well, Mater's contribution was the math made more sense if there was a moment zero to the universe. And even though the math clearly led there as we've seen ever since, no one got there before the theist did, the Jesuit priest astrophysicist, because so ingrained in us from Aristotle until the early 1900s was the idea the universe had always been here. And that's that's the, the crazy part of this that I think I wasn't told as a kid. I, I never heard in science class or more history classroom, but up until that period, even Decades into the 1900s, it is still the scientific consensus the universe is past eternal or some rendition of that. And it was Lemaitre saying uh, that the math doesn't work. So the Big Bang moniker was a joke from guys like Fred Hoyle making fun of Lemaitre, saying this is some kind of Catholic nonsense. The universe started with a Big Bang and then, lo and behold, it has such staying power. Uh, Fred Hoyle advances idea after idea after idea, decade after decade after decade. Einstein gives up pretty early. He buys in. Uh, Hoyle doesn't. He, I mean, like, I think to his grave, <laughs> didn't like it. Yeah. And and just his ideas fell apart. And we don't know who Fred Hoyle is today. You never hear his name. Big right. Bang still around. Um, mm-hmm. Just without major his part of the story. Yeah. And we act like Einstein, you know, or uh, Hubble or somebody gave us that. And it's not. It's from this Jesuit priest who had this crazy idea that maybe the universe started somewhere.
0: Yeah. You know, two two things on that. One, uh, the Jesuits have a a good showing in this uh, because one of the other main arguments that Meyer is going to get into, and we'll talk about this in the next podcast is the evidence of genetics, which is now starting to lend you to believe that there's a creator. And you go back far enough in genetics, you get another monk, Gregor Mendel, who everybody reads about in high school because you get the Punnett squares and kind of the fundamentals of genetics. Uh, But it turns out the further you go into these disciplines, the more you realize that many, if not all of them were started by people of faith. And I wanted to read a quote uh, about that that <clears throat> Meyer makes really clear he says the great pioneers in physics Newton Galileo Kepler Copernicus devoutly believed themselves to be so, devoutly believed themselves called to find evidence of god in the physical world the astronomer johann kepler for example claimed that god wanted us to recognize natural laws and that god made this possible by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. That is very, very biblical, uh, just on its surface. And then Meyer goes on to say, thus, the assumption that a rational mind with a will had created the universe gave rise to two ideas, contingency, referring to the universe, and intelligibility, which in turn provided a powerful impetus to study nature with confidence that such study would yield understanding.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Those those two concepts and both of them undersold the the contingency. Um, Even guys like Hume and Bertrand Russell are saying, hey, existence is a brute fact. We just have to be here. Look in the mirror and say that with a straight face. There is nothing about our existence that had to be. It's all contingent. Uh, We are here because of some cause. We are here because of <laughs> that's that's how it works. Yeah, and even the rudimentary acquaintance with philosophy, back to Aristotle all the way forward, would lead you to that conclusion. Um, you just have to blindly and willfully turn away from that to 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 ignore it, and then the intelligibility of the universe. I, I still don't think people. I, I went through you know science program, and still I don't think really until later wrestled with the fact that you could write down a law of gravity that had predictive power, and there is no reason that I should be able to write F equals G M1 M2 over R squared, and that means something. It's it's no reason for it. Mm -hmm. And never mind that I could go to the moon with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think... One of the compelling pieces of the book is you get a sense that not only does the best of mathematics and physics match the world that we find, uh, that there's some translation between what goes on in our heads and what goes on mathematically, and then uh, what we can see play out in nature. That's what I was saying earlier, that the mathematics a lot of times previews and guides what we can do with experimentation and science. Uh, But the other thing is, you see these major discoveries that after the dust has settled, you realize that uh, things are looking a lot better for the theistic perspective than you thought they were. And so the more discoveries that happen, the more you realize there was a time when science was motivated by faith, there's a time when science and faith had pretty much decoupled in an adversarial relationship. But now, all of a sudden, you're hearing a lot of physicists and mathematicians, astronomers who are willing to admit that they're people of faith. What was the inflection point or what do you think were the causes that have brought faith and science at least back into their proper place or back together in a sense?
1: Uh so it's it, ironically, you referenced the old Galileo joke about the church as an ostrich with its head in the sand. Ironically, that's what science had to become in the 20th century to ignore where it was leading itself. That at the end of these great discoveries were, was waiting another set of wonderful, powerful questions. I think it was Robert Jastrow who has the line about the... scientists climbed the mountain and got to the peak and found the theologians waiting there all along. Like (laughs) We're back to, okay, we've gone back to Genesis or Aristotle, but somebody has to ask the question, so where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And how did it arise? And you have guys like uh, Krauss uh, in the astrophysics and philosophy community giving absurd answers, Mm -hmm. like the universe arrives from nothing and by nothing, I mean something. It's incomprehensible gibberish mm-hmm. that that is laughable, um, and everybody else is saying, "Wait, well, is that the best we got? That's our right. top tier answer." Um, so you have that issue. You have the issue of meaning, where um, human existence feels as though it means something, and Dawkins has to passionately argue that it doesn't. That you are irrelevant. The universe is just churning us out. It doesn't care that you're here and you shouldn't either. I mean, right. it, it, when you have to be convinced of your own meaninglessness. Um, that was a pain. Um, and then an issue that has arisen in the last hundred years, scientific ethics. There's a quote attributed to I. And I've never been able to track it down.
0: Okay, we lost Ben to a huge storm in southern Oklahoma, but uh, the quote he was looking for is attributed to Albert Einstein, and it says, you are right in speaking of the moral foundations of science, but you cannot turn around and speak of the scientific foundations of morality, which, to, to the point of discussing Dawkins, one of the things that's gotten really popular in the last few years in response to these new atheists is really trying to figure out where the boundaries of what science can and cannot answer lie. And so you get people coming along like Stephen Meyer, who has a PhD in the philosophy of science, not just a practitioner of science, but someone who's thinking about science and where the boundaries of scientific inquiry lie. The major pushback against some of the new atheists has been Are they claiming too much for what is and is not a scientific question? So uh, the concept of meaninglessness, the concept of morals, the concept of identity, the concept of consciousness even, uh, are very fraught with lines of what science can and cannot deal with. And I think that's become a more powerful argument in the last few years of, well, we need proper philosophy of science to know what kinds of questions science can and cannot answer. And for much of the second half of the 20th century, science was overreaching and talking about questions that it really doesn't have the tools to deal with. Now, in the coming weeks, we're gonna be diving into these specific arguments that Stephen Meyer makes. Again, he's, he's making three big arguments uh, about scientific inquiry that would point us to a creator. And while we'll wrap up this episode on the history and development of the God hypothesis, Uh, Stay tuned. In a couple of weeks, we'll be coming back with part two of The God Hypothesis, The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen Meyer. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.